Father, we ask that you guide us through this study, Joshua chapter 9, this morning. And as we think about all of the implications of these events that took place so many thousands of years ago, we pray that you give us eyes that see and ears that hear. But we study, Father, not not just to to know these facts, but for these these facts to, to change us, these words that are inspired by Your very presence, Father, Your Spirit. We, we pray that these words change us and that we, we become so much more deeply grounded in Your presence and transformed into even more winsome and, and beautiful disciples because of Your dedication to us as we are dedicated to Your Word and the study of it. Bless us, Father, to this task. And, and help us always to, to approach Your Word with a heart that seeks to hear gladly. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to begin with a, a story this morning that I read some years ago, probably in the 1990s. If I remember correctly, it was probably in Reader's Digest. Guy wakes up one morning, there's a little voice in his head that says, you need to go to the bank. So he gets up out of bed, takes a shower, gets dressed, goes to the bank. He's standing in the lobby, and this little voice says to him, you need to go over to that teller and withdraw all the money out of your savings and checking account. And so he goes over and does it. And as she's handing him this big envelope of money, the little voice in his brain, in his, in his mind, says, you need to go to Vegas. And so he gets on an airplane and he flies into Vegas. And as he's landing and they're taxing, that little voice speaks to him again. And that little inner voice said to him, you need to go to the first casino that you see. And so he gets off the plane, grabs a taxi, goes to the casino. He walks in, he's looking around at all of the stuff. And this little voice says, go to a roulette table. And so he goes over to the roulette table, and the little voice says, put all of that money on black 49. And so he puts all of that money on black 49, just a big old pile of chips, lays on black 49. They spin that big wheel, they drop the ball, and it lands on red 36. And that little voice inside of his head said, oops. <laughs> I, there are times when I think the little voice inside of me is an idiot. And that's where we find ourselves in Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9 is a reminder that Satan will use deception to cause you, to to bring you to a place where you are going to make a very, very foolish decision. Now, all of us have made foolish decisions from time to time. There are times when we did something that in the moment it seemed like the right thing to do, but in hindsight... You know, it wasn't all that smart of a thing to do. In fact, how many of us know a story that does, you know, are there any stories that end well that begin with the words, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time? (laughs) Well, this is where we find Israel this morning. Joshua chapter 9, the key verse. This is the verse we need to get our minds around. The men of Israel did not inquire of the Lord. The men of Israel did not inquire of the Lord. Now here's the context. The men of Israel, the the B'nai Israel, the sons of Israel have taken Jericho. 
They have taken AI, which means that they are beginning to, to get some elevation in the geography. They're getting to the high places. And the people that are living around that area know without a shadow of a doubt that they're going to have to deal with Israel. Israel is a force that is going to have to be reckoned with. It is not going away. If anything, it is insinuating itself deeper and deeper and deeper into the promised land. So there are these seven kings of Canaan that decide that they're going to fight against Israel. You have the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and those dreaded Girgashites. And out of all of those people, there's this one little group that says, you know what, I don't think we're going to do that. The, the Gideonites, or excuse me, Gibeonites, had somehow concluded that it would be a very futile exercise to fight against the B'nai Israel, the sons of Israel, and so they come up with a ruse. Now the ironic thing about this ruse, as you know from your study of this book, is that this ruse depended greatly, I mean the whole foundation of the ruse was based on the knowledge of the teaching of Moses. Now how they found out about it, I have absolutely not a clue. Maybe they sent some of their spies to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal in the preceding chapter when, when Joshua takes the people after Ai is defeated and they renew the covenant and they reread all the blessings and the cursings. And we remember that story of what the people heard as they were down in that valley. But Moses had taught the people some very specific things about how to deal with, with the people around them and the people that were distant from them. And so going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and chapter 20, a couple of verses. Chapter 7, verse 1, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, the seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must what? Destroy them totally. You must destroy them totally. There's no ambiguity. There's no vagueness in that language. It's not whitewashed. The language is, is exact. You are to destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Don't do it. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Cut and dry. It's black and white. There's, there's nothing to be misconstrued here. So now we go to Deuteronomy chapter 20. There's further instruction that's given. Beginning in verse 10, Moses says, When you march up to attack a city... Make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make, a pe uh, to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. So it sounds basically the opposite of what Moses said in chapter 7, correct? Except that we drop down to verse 15 where Moses says, This is how you treat all the cities that are at a what? Distance. There's a mileage between you and they. This is, verse 15, this is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. Now again, the instructions are pretty clear. The near nations, the nations that are up close, that are going to be surrounding you, they are to be destroyed. But distant nations, nations that are out on your horizon, they can have a treaty of peace established from, with you. Now somehow, in, in, in some way, the Gibeonites have stumbled on this information and they know that they have to trick Israel into believing that they are one of those distant nations, that they're not from those seven, within the, 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 the seven nations that are going to war with those seven kings with Israel, that they're this distant nation. And so, 
you know what they do. They dress up in the old clothes. They get some old, uh, moldy, musty, crumbly, you know, Mrs. Baird's bread. And, and they get the old cracked wineskins that they had thrown away. They grab those out of the, off the dump and they, they, they spread dirt all over and dust all over themselves and they head to Gilgal. And notice another thing that they do. When they get there, they don't mention Jericho and they don't mention Ai. Those are some very recent events, right? What they say is, we heard about what happened in Egypt with the parting of the Red Sea. What a gigantic God you must have. And we also heard what God did through you to those two kings on the east side of the Jordan, and he's talking about Sihon and Og. But he do, they don't mention Jericho and Ai. It's interesting. But it's all part of the ruse. They don't mention Jericho and Ai because those are recent events, which meant that they were probably close by in the, 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 the days prior and that they were probably maybe perhaps lying, and the Israelites would pick up on this. So they basically say, we don't have any recent events, we haven't turned on the BBC. We haven't turned on uh, the CNN. We, don't, we haven't read any papers. We've come from a long way. We don't even know where to get the papers. These are the stories we've heard. And the ruse works. And the, the, the B'nai Israel, these sons of, of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, who have been told to, 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 to talk to God and to check with God, and to trust God's Word, and to follow God. They sample the provisions, but they do not inquire of the Lord. And the ruse works. And here's the thing. Israel did not disobey God's Word as if that was their intention. Israel did not obey God's Word at all, although that was not the way they intended for it to be. Now here's the thing, very important. The enemy has entered the camp through deception. The enemy has entered their camp through deception. Now, here's what's going on. The, the Gibeonites, they understand the events that have transpired around them. They knew about Jericho. They knew about Ai. They knew about the walls that surrounded Jericho. They knew the story. They talked... They, they talked about the power of the God of, the, uh, of, the, of, of, the God of Israel in bringing those walls down. They knew that they, if they met them on the field of battle, they couldn't win. Nobody was winning against Israel. And so although the enemy had not won in battle, they are going to win in this particular case through deception. And here's the thing that's really scary for Israel. Israel did not even realize that they were under attack. And that, my friends, is the way that Satan enters into the lives of a lot of disciples. Satan enters into the lives of a lot of disciples of Jesus of Nazareth through deception. He is close before they even know that he is near them. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say, you know, I, I was just living my life. And I was just going about my own business. And I don't have a clue as to how I ended up where I am today. How did that happen? Or you hear somebody say, I never thought that this one action would lead to all of this grief. I never realized that this one action would lead to a lifetime of struggling with the consequences of this one event. You see, my brothers and sisters, Satan's most effective ploy at times is to make a disciple think that there is peace in the middle of a spiritual war. 
And so we become complacent. And we let our guard down. And the evil one and evil and consequences and tragedy and sin enter into our life and it is in the camp before we even know that it's there. Four things I want you to learn from, you know, four lessons from this deception. The first is evil will always be united against the kingdom of God. Evil will always be united. Evil will unite against the kingdom of God. These kings throughout all of history have been used to fighting each other. They were jockeying for position. Their borders were always changing. They wanted the wealth. They wanted the wealth in all of those countries and nations around them. So they were used to going to war with each other. But now they unite against Joshua and the sons of Israel. And that is something that happens throughout the Bible, the entire Bible. Let me give you a couple of, uh, of examples. During the time of Jesus, you have Pharisees and you have Sadducees, you have Zealots, you have Essenes, you have uh, Herodians, you have all of these different groups. First century Judaism is as fragmented as any group of people known on the face of the earth. And those Pharisees and those Sadducees during the first century A.D., during the time of Jesus, in no way did they have anything to do with each other. The Pharisees were more the common people. They were a holiness movement. They were looking to do Torah in such a way that God would bless them and get Rome's uh, hobnail boot off of their throat. The Sadducees that were down in the south and around Jerusalem, they were more aristocratic. They were more affluent. They were the ones that politically had made their compromises and had made their peace with Rome. These two groups of people did not get together on anything. They couldn't even decide which day of the month was the true day of atonement. Up in the north they had one calendar. In the south they had another calendar. They were so far apart that those, the, the, the ones up in the north would celebrate the Day of Atonement or the, any of the great feasts on this day and then those in the south on another day. They were that divided until it came to Jesus. And then all of a sudden you have Pharisees and Sadducees uniting in an effort to get rid of the Messiah. The same is even true with Pilate and Herod. Those two men did not even like each other in the least. But we're told that when, when Jesus was crucified, that when He died on the cross, He was condemned to die, that Pilate and Herod became fast friends in that moment. And even think ethnically, not just politically or, or uh, religiously. Politically, you have the Romans and, and, and the Jewish people. I mean, they were at each other's throats. Rome was always looking for some kind of a Jewish uprising and, and, and very hypersensitive to all of that. But then who is it that cooperates in the crucifying of Jesus? The Romans and the Jews. In Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1, David asks, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against whom? The Lord. And against His anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. I mean, when you begin reading the Bible in Genesis and you read all the way through to the maps, what you find is that there is a, a, always a uniting of the forces of evil, the individuals that make up those kingdoms, all the forces of darkness, all the forces that stand opposed to God, they will unite and they will stand together against God and His anointed people. But that's not the only thing. It's not just that we're, you know, we're fighting Satan one-on-one. -on -one. We are fighting a united kingdom of darkness. But then number two, evil will change its strategy against you. When I was wrestling 
you know, there were these 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 uh, these these guys that you know were all biceps and 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 all you know chest and you know they would come out and you know if you met them force by force you know horsepower to horsepower there were a lot of times where you would just wear yourself out and nobody was really ahead. That's where you had to be cunning. You had to wait for somebody to make a mistake because you knew that they were just going to depend on their strength and not on they were not going to think. And the next thing you know. You know, here's this cat with all of the muscles and he's flexing. He goes out there and next thing you know, he's on his back getting pinned. The same is true in the spiritual battle. Evil will change its strategy against you. There are times when Satan will go around and it's kind of obvious because he is in 1 Peter chapter 5, that lion that's prowling about and roaring and looking for somebody to what? Devour. Satan wants to devour you. Peter is, is not trying to hedge you know, any meaning here. He's not trying to cover up anything. What he's trying to communicate to the church in Rome is that when it comes to Satan, don't let there be any misconceptions. Don't let there be any misunderstandings about what is happening. Satan is going to devour you. He is prowling about in order to find somebody to devour. But then he will also change strategy. And it's not horsepower versus horsepower. It's not mano a mano. It's not face to face. That ferocious lion becomes subtle and cunning like a serpent. And so we have Paul writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I am afraid just as Eve was what? Was what? Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning. Your minds, your minds, may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Drop down to verse 14. Because Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. What does that mean? Well, it means that Paul's, you know, Paul's afraid that you know, people in Corinth, you know, there's a thinking group of people. You know, they're a group of people that are not going to realize that there is a strategy that is, you know, a united evil that's trying to destroy the church and somehow like, you know, that there's going to be this cunning that they're not going to pick up and they're going to be tricked. But the funny thing is, I, you, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not like my, my youngest brother when it comes to snakes. I, I, I have a healthy respect. But when I see a snake, I see a snake, I see a snake, and, I, you know, I'm on edge. But what if it was an angel of light? And not even something as observable and, and, and uh, pointed as a serpent. And what Paul is trying to say is that sometimes Satan will look awesome. 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 In order to deceive you into thinking that it's okay to bring him in close, and then that is when the fangs are exposed, and it's not an angel of light, but it's a lion. The nature of Satan is to lie and to deceive. The nature of Satan is to lie and to deceive. And you won't try to escape if you don't know you're under his influence. Let me tell you an area that I am most concerned about when it comes to our church family. One of the best ways for us to begin, for our minds to be, to, to be lured away from the things that are pure and the things that are holy of God in His kingdom, the things that are taught us in His Word, the things that we testify to by changed lives, is humor. 
Satan knows that if he can get us to laugh at it, then we're not going to be afraid of it. And so the most, you know, I don't, I don't want to use the word devious or insidious way, what I want to, the most effective way, the most powerful way that Satan corrupts people in our culture, in our time, is through the inappropriate use of humor. And the next thing you know, we're laughing at something that we shouldn't be laughing at and because we're, you know, because it's funny and because it's pleasure and because, you know, we feel good and all of a sudden the danger is taken away and because we're laughing and we're having a good time, all of a sudden those things are brought in close to us. The problem of sexual promiscuity, the the problem of sexual immorality has not gone down in our culture because it's talked about more on television. You see, Satan, Satan will use any means available to him to separate you from, from God and from God's Word. In fact, let me, let me skip down to this, uh, this very next point. Evil will attempt to insulate you from God's Word. Evil attempts to insulate you from God's Word. That's one of the key concepts here in Joshua chapter 9. The sons of Israel did not inquire of the Lord. What's His Word? I don't know. We didn't ask. Satan will even use Scripture at times to tempt you to derail your, your vision of what God has called you to do in your life. That's what He did to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, after 40 days of going without food and, 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 and fasting after being baptized and the Spirit descending on it, is met by Satan, just, just I, I think probably a little bit west of the Jordan River in an area known as the Wadi Kelt. And he begins to tempt Christ, and he goes head on, and it doesn't work head on. So then he takes him to a high place and says, you know what, God is really wanting to, you to be glorified. And you can be glorified. And he takes him to this place where if he jumps off the temple, everybody will see it and go, oh my goodness, what a tremendous miracle. And Satan backs it up with Scripture and says, you know what, does it not even say in Psalm 91 that the angels will bear you up. They will catch you. You won't even bruise a toe. There is a breakdown in the ability to discern right from wrong. And when we do not have God's Word firmly in our hearts, and not meaning that we just can tell you all the names of the apostles or all the names of the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament, but that that Word is becoming a wisdom for us. And it is shaping the way that we think about life. And it's putting us on the right course in the right direction. Then evil is going to win the day. You probably heard about the two blondes that were out hunting for the very first time. And here are these two blondes, never been hunting, they go out deer hunting, and believe it or not, they shoot a, they shoot a, a buck. And they had never hunted before. They don't know what to do with the thing, so they grab it by the tail. And they start dragging it back to the truck. And that's kind of a hard thing to do. That tail's not all that long, and the deer is heavy. But they're, you know, these two blonde gals are carrying this, dragging this deer through the woods back to the truck when they run across an old hunter. And the old hunter says, Gal's a... Uh, how many times have you been hunting? They go, this is our first time. He said, well, I could kind of tell. Because uh, somebody that had been out here before would know that, you know, if you pull by the antlers, then you're going to have a, it's a lot easier. You'll make a better way for yourself. And so they go and they grab the antlers on that, that buck and they start pulling. And after a while, one of the blondes says to the other, says, you know, this really works so much better than pulling on that tail. And the other blonde says, yes, but it's getting us further and further away from the truck. I don't write these things. (laughs) 
That one was for free, by the way. <laughs> but the point is this. Satan will always insulate you from the Word of God in order to direct you away from God. Moses instructed Joshua to go to the high priest to discern the will of God. He had the, 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 uh, the Urim and the Thummim. And they, they sampled the provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. They, there was no going and finding out what is God's will in this point. And that's why the daily practice of pressing your mind into the, the Bible is important. I have friends in this church that every day read a chapter out of Proverbs. And not only do they read that, but they text the, the salient points to, to somebody or to a bunch of other men. The idea being, we're in this together. We need to know God's Word. We're inquiring every day of what God's will is. That's why we're reading Proverbs. I carry around to this day in my pocket, everywhere I go, a keychain. And on this keychain is written Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And every day, every time I unlock a, a, a lock, a door, and every time I go to, to start a work or, or to get into my truck to go someplace, I am reminded of these words, to trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, submit to Him and He'll make your path straight. And then the last is, evil will camouflage the consequences. And this is the part really, and it may, it may be new to us, but this is the part I think that should make us really tremble. Satan will convince you to make commitments you shouldn't and to break commitments that you should keep. Vows have to be kept. Vows before the Lord have to be kept. And when the ruse is uncovered, the people begin to grumble against the covenant, against the vow, against Joshua. They're starting to maybe pick up some stones, and Joshua stands up and he admits the mistake, but he does not break the vow. He does not break the vow. And as we learn in next week's lesson, they actually go to war against these seven kings on behalf of the, of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites, they are discovered by, the, by their enemies to have made this, this covenant, this peace treaty with Israel, and so they're going to be attacked, and Israel comes to their rescue. And that was a covenant that had to stick. And even hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later, we find that covenant still in force. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 21, during the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. He's inquiring of the Lord. And the Lord said, It's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Evil will always be united against you. That's why you need to be a part of a church family. Evil will change its strategy against you. That's why you need close friends who know your life. Evil will attempt to insulate you from God's Word. That's why you have to be a disciple when it comes to understanding the Word of God and pressing your mind into it on a daily basis. And evil will also camouflage the consequences. You have to think clearly. Think clearly about the decisions that you make every day. But the good news is, is that God is so merciful. I don't know how any of us would be able to make it in this life, how any of us would be able to stand up, how any of us, knowing what we know, would be able to get out of bed in the morning and go about our work if it were not for the compassion and the mercy of God the Father. 
that can take our life and all of the mistakes, all of the damage that evil has done to it and turn it into something that God believes to be beautiful. It's a story that uh, uh, I read some years ago. Fishermen in England are in this place at the middle of the day after doing a little bit of trout fishing and they're talking about how big the fish were that they were catching. And you know how fishermen are. Well, you know, I caught this big, and, but then I caught one this big, and somebody said I caught one this big. And just as a waitress was going by with a tray that had some, some tea, cups of tea and a, a teapot on it, and when he put his hand out and said, I caught one this big, it hit that teapot and smashed it against the wall, and there was this, this, this tea stain, brown tea stain. And the story is told that the owner of, of, this, of this, uh, this place got a little upset, saying, I'm going to have to paint the whole place now to get rid of the stain. When a gentleman that was sitting in the back of the table drinking his tea and eating scones got up and took his pencil and said, I think I can fix this. And he took his pencil and he began to sketch along the, the, that spot. And before you knew it, there was a, a picture of this stag uh, you know, raising up out of, out of, uh, out of the woods out, you know, on a hilltop. And he, he said, maybe you can keep that. And he turned around and he left before people realized that that was Sir Landseer, the premier naturalist paint, painter in England during that period of time. And he had taken something that was truly ugly, something that was horrible looking, something that was going to have to be whitewashed. But it wasn't whitewashed. It was turned into something beautiful. And that's what it is that God does with your life regardless of what evil might do to it. And evil does its damage. It, it, it doesn't just ping you. It, it torques your life at times. And, and you feel the, the lameness and you feel the limp in your soul. But the righteousness of God's love and the holiness of His forgiveness and, and the mercy of His grace is so powerful that it can take someone who is in rebellion and take somebody that is lost and take somebody that is, is ugly in their heart and heinous in their mind and turn them into a beautiful daughter or a beautiful son. That's what God does. Now Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds, our spiritual leaders are going to be down here at the front. Is there something that we could do this morning to help you get close to God, to deal with with that evil that is not just... Evil, evil is not just out there. Evil is personal. Evil is, is, is inner. Is there something that our church family can do that can help you this morning deal with it? Through prayer or through Bible study or through your sins being washed away after repentance and confession of sin and living your life as a disciple of Jesus with the Spirit of God Himself in you, sanctifying you and making you beautiful and holy every day. Well, these shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to them as we stand and sing together. Time is filled with...